This episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast is brought to you by edX, an online learning destination where you can take fascinating free courses from the world's best universities, such as Harvard and MIT. If you want to learn new skills to advance your career, try edX. They have free courses on a variety of subjects, from computer science to management, IT services, engineering, languages, and more. With over 500 courses from more than 80 universities and institutions representing every country in the world, edX has more than 4 million students. Go to edX.org debate to start learning for free today. That's edX.org debate. Start learning today. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Churchill was more of a liability than an asset to the free world. That is the motion. It was early on the morning of September 1st, that's just two days ago, that London heard of the German invasion of Poland. Chamberlain hesitated, addressed the House of Commons on the next day, the 2nd, in a debate which, in which famously the Tory backbencher Leo Amory called on, to, on Attlee's deputy, Arthur Greenwood, to speak for England Arthur. The country was expecting, even eager for the war to begin. We likewise are eager for this debate to begin. Such a galaxy of appropriate speakers do we have here. So now, to propose the motion, Churchill was more of a liability than an asset to the free world. To propose that motion, Pat Buchanan. From a career that began in journalism, he went on to become senior advisor to three U.S. presidents, Nixon, Ford, and Reagan and himself was twice a candidate for the Republican nomination. In his White House years, he wrote foreign policy speeches and attended summits accompanying Nixon to China and Reagan to Reykjavik. He's published 10 books, including appropriate to tonight's debate, Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War. Pat Buchanan. Thank you. To borrow from Mark Anthony's funeral oration for the great Caesar, we of the affirmative are not here to praise Mr. Churchill, but to bury him. But first, let me concede the greatness of the man. In that finest hour of the British nation, 1940, Winston Churchill was indomitable, an inspiration to men everywhere. He was the lion who gave the British nation its roar of defiance in the teeth of Nazi Germany. For that, he will be honored forever and by peoples everywhere. And if we judged him on that year alone, there would be no debate here. There would be unanimity. But Churchill's career did not last a single year. It lasted for half a century. And over that half century, I submit, no other career of a Western statesman was more calamitous for his country and civilization than that of Winston Spencer Churchill. More than any other British leader in 1914 and 1939, Churchill lusted for war and pushed his country to turn two European wars into world wars so Germany might be destroyed. And both times Churchill succeeded. And history records that those wars that together took the lives of perhaps a hundred million Europeans were the mortal blows that advanced 
the death of the West. And it was Winston Churchill who led the West in its advance to barbarism. As First Lord, on the first days, he instituted a starvation blockade that violated all the rules of warfare, including those advocated by Lord Salisbury, that brought death to 100 times as many German civilians as the Belgian civilians killed by the Kaiser's army in Belgium. Churchill's purpose was, he said himself, quote, to starve the whole population, men, women, and children, old and young, wounded and sound, into submission. Four months after Germany laid down its arms in 1919, the starvation blockade remained in force, and Churchill rose in Parliament to exult, we are enforcing the blockade with rigor, and Germany is near starvation. And that led to Hitler. In 1920, as Secretary for War and Air, Churchill, enraged by Iraqi resistance to British colonial rule, declaimed, I am strongly in favor of using poison gas against uncivilized tribes to spread a lively terror. Eighty years later, Saddam Hussein and Chemical Ali were hanged in Baghdad for doing what Churchill urged and what Britain did. The day he became Prime Minister in 1940, as the German army was breaking through in the Ardennes, Churchill directed his bombers not against Rommel's panzers, but against Rhineland cities. That, that was what your own historian Paul Johnson called a critical stage in the moral declension of humanity in our time. Coventry and the Blitz were Nazi war crimes, but they were also reprisal raids for terror bombing begun by Churchill. The climax came in 1945 with thunderclap, the firebombing of Dresden, the Florence of the Elbes, a defenseless city of a defeated nation packed with refugees fleeing the serial rapists of the Red Army. Estimates of the Dresden dead range from 35,000 to 250,000. But he was a great war strategist, we are told. But the greatest British debacle of World War I was Gallipoli, an ill-conceived drive to force the Dardanelles that cost a quarter of a million British, French, and Anzac troops. Architect of the disaster, First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill. The greatest British debacle of World War II was Norway, when the invading Royal Marines arrived 24 hours after German troops had landed and occupied all the major Norwegian ports from Oslo to Narvik. Architect of the disaster, First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill. One British historian suggests that Norway operation was blown by Churchill himself blabbing his plans to national press attaches, which was then picked up by German intelligence. That historian, a Mr. Andrew Roberts. <laughs> what of Churchill the statesman? In 1921, the Americans arrogantly demanded that Britain come to Washington for a naval conference, agree to scrap hundreds of ships, and sever a 20-year alliance with Japan that had been faithful throughout World War I. Churchill urged capitulation to the Americans, and Britain capitulated, terminated their Japanese treaty, and began dismantling the greatest navy in the world. 
The great historian, British historian Corelli Barnett, calls the capitulation to America's demands at Churchill's insistence one of the major catastrophes of English history. Five years later, Chancellor of the Exchequer Churchill said, do not worry, war with Japan is not a possibility which any reasonable government need take into account. When Churchill was Prime Minister, Singapore fell to Japan and the empire was finished in Asia. When Hitler marched into the Rhineland in 1936, Churchill hailed the French for taking the matter to the League of Nations. But the ideal solution, he wrote, would be for Hitler to do the noble thing and march back out of the Rhineland. Unfortunately, Hitler did not read that excellent column. In 1939, Mr. Churchill pushed his country to go to war for Poland. Britain did. And was Poland saved? Instead of losing Danzig, the Poles lost half their country, six million dead, and 50 years of freedom. Churchill excoriated Chamberlain for appeasing Hitler. But Churchill's four years of appeasement of Joseph Stalin made Neville Chamberlain at Munich look like Davy Crockett at the Alamo. At Moscow, Tehran, and Yalta, Churchill told Stalin he could keep all the fruits of his devil's pact with Hitler, including the Baltic republics. He acceded to Moscow's demands for domination of Eastern Europe and Central Europe in violation of the solemn pledges he gave in the Atlantic Charter. When he came back from Yalta in 1945, Churchill told Parliament, I know of no government that stands to its obligations more solidly than the Russian Soviet government. Churchill then gave his benediction to the most barbaric act of ethnic cleansing in history, the forced expulsion of 13 million German old men, women, and children from their ancestral homes in Eastern and Central Europe. Two million died in that exodus. At war's end, Germany was a smoldering ruin, but all the great capitals of Central and Eastern Europe, Warsaw, Berlin, Budapest, Prague, Vienna, were occupied by Stalin's Red Army. Britain was bankrupt and broken, the empire was collapsing, and the Americans were going home. But there was this consolation. Haile Selassie was back on his throne in Addis Ababa. When Churchill entered the inner cabinet, Britain was the first nation on earth and ruler of the greatest empire since Rome. When he left in 1945, Britain was an island dependency of the United States. He was a great man at the cost of his country's greatness. Thank you. Opposing the motion, Andrew Roberts, historian and writer who spent 20 years researching, writing, and broadcasting both about Churchill and the Second World War. His first book was a biography of Lord Halifax, Churchill's foreign secretary. And among other books, there have been eminent Churchillians, Hitler and Churchill, Secrets of Leadership, Masters and Commanders, and his most recent book, published to some acclaim, The Storm of War, A New History of the Second World War. Andrew Roberts. Winston Churchill was not just an asset to the free world, he was its champion. He was his champion on five major occasions. 
It was he who mobilised the Grand Fleet at the outbreak of the Great War. As the guns of August, the salvos of the guns of August were being heard, he made sure the Royal Navy was ready and was unable to and would not lose the war in an afternoon. In the 1930s, he warned at great personal political cost to himself about the threat that Nazi Germany posed to Western civilization. In May 1940, only Prime Minister for a few days, he opposed any deal, any peace deal with Adolf Hitler. And instead, he using, uh, using his supreme, sublime oratory, his Shakespearean poetic oratory, he articulated the British people's will to fight fascism. And he did it in such a way as never to underestimate the terrible sacrifices that that was going to uh, imply. His fourth great uh, service to the free world was to formulate the grand strategy that drew down Germany into the Mediterranean, into North Africa, and then to follow the strategy of attacking Sicily, Italy, and only when we were ready, only when the uh, situation was right in the air and at sea, to cross the channel in June 1944 in Operation Overlord. And then his fifth and last great contribution to the free world was in the Iron Curtain speech of March 1946 in Fulton, Missouri, to warn the world of the peril that it faced from Soviet communism and from Joseph Stalin, a peril that was being seen in Eastern Europe already at the time and was going to spread into the wider world. He didn't live to see that victory, but he set us on the path and he set the moral parameters necessary for the victory that we've seen in our lifetimes. It's rarely given, ladies and gentlemen, for even one man to uh, be able to show such service, to render such service to the free world, um, even once in history, let alone five times. He wasn't just an asset to the free world. He was its exemplar. He was its paladin. Indeed, uh, we on the opposition will seek to show you tonight how had it not been for Winston Churchill, there might not even have been a free world. Did he make mistakes? Yes, you bet he did. He was in the House of Commons between 1900 and 1964, nearly two-thirds of a century. The man was flesh and blood. He made mistakes, of course he did, as you've uh, heard a few of them, and you'll be hearing uh, dozens more, I'm sure, from the proposition this evening. But ladies and gentlemen, they are mere pimples on the mountains of his achievement. You'll hear these, uh, these mistakes of his lovingly trotted out, not all of them uh, accurately, by the way, when Winston Churchill was writing about uh, uh, poison gas in Iraq. If you actually uh, had read the entire... Um, the entire quote in context, what it's clear he's talking about is, the, is tear gas, because he talks about making the, uh, the eyes of the people who are, um, use the same kind of thing as used against rioters today. It's quite different from the kind of Zyklon B, which, uh, which uh, Pat Buchanan was attempting to equate it with. But you'll hear these, um, these arguments. And you'll also hear the proposition argue that Hitler did not pose an existential threat to, the, uh, to Britain and her empire. Ladies and gentlemen, this is utterly false. Adolf Hitler hated our liberal bourgeois democracy quite as much as he hated 
Bolshevism. Had he won against Russia, he would have come against us. He ripped up every single treaty he ever signed. But the historian in Churchill, ladies and gentlemen, the historian in Churchill noted and saw how you cannot allow an aggressive, hegemonistic power to dominate the continent of Europe. We didn't allow Philip of Spain to do it. We didn't allow Louis XIV to do it. We didn't allow Napoleon to do it. We didn't allow the Kaiser to do it. And Winston Churchill was sure as hell not about to allow a foam-flecked genocidal maniac like Adolf Hitler to do it. We meet in an historic hall uh, tonight. It's the, uh, it was the largest air raid shelter in the United Kingdom during the Second World War. It was the place from which General de Gaulle bravely launched his uh, Free French movement during the, uh, during the early part of the war in 1940. And it was the place where, on the 15th of March 1945, Churchill told the British people, victory lies before us, certain and perhaps near. Ladies and gentlemen, please don't sully the fine history of this splendid hall for voting for such a gratuitously absurd motion. I beg to oppose. To second the motion, the motion that Churchill was more a liability than an asset to the free world, just reminding you of the wording of that motion, is Nigel Knight. Now, Nigel is a political scientist and economist, fellow of Churchill College, Cambridge, and member of the Economics and Political Faculty Board of Cambridge University. Prior to that, he taught at Oxford and was active in political life as an advisor and policy writer. He is the author of Churchill, The Greatest Britain Unmasked, and also of Governing Britain Since 1945, Nigel Knight. Well, I, I promise I'm not going to sully the hall, but in respect of Churchill, ostensibly the greatest Britain, the great visionary, the man who could see things that the rest of us couldn't. Well, Churchill in the 1920s, 24 to 29, was Chancellor of the Exchequer. He reintroduced the gold standard in 1925. This was a policy that John Maynard Keynes, the greatest economist of his generation, warned against. Churchill went ahead with the policy in 1925, and Keynes wrote a seminal piece, the economic consequences of Mr. Churchill, in which Keynes had the vision. He warned of the consequences of that policy. He warned there'd be a depression. Keynes was correct. The resultant recession in the British economy through the 1920s weakened this economy severely. It meant that come the 1929 Wall Street crash, the economy was much more severely affected than would have been the case without that policy, a policy which, of course, had to be reversed in 1931 when we came off the gold standard forever. Also, as Chancellor of the Exchequer in the 1920s, Churchill voluntarily constrained defence expenditure at the very time 
when Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party were rising in Germany, Mussolini was in power in Italy, and the prospective Japanese military threat was already recognized by the Admiralty, the British Admiralty, from 1924. And yet, as late as the summer of 1941, Churchill was still minuting that Britain and the United States had no direct threat from Japan. Through the wilderness years in the 1930s, of course we remember Churchill as warning us of the growing threat of uh, Nazi Germany, exhorting us to rearm more quickly. Of course the economy had been immensely weakened given that Britain was a major hegemonic power, major economy at that time, of course, the economic consequences were not just felt in this country, but globally, of Churchill's policy returning to the gold standard. But the most important aspect of rearmament in the 1930s, what would enable us in 1940, in the Battle of Britain, to do the only thing which this country could do on its own, to defend these islands from invasion to ensure that Britain became the unsinkable aircraft carrier from which the Second Front was launched. That was accomplished with two fighters, the Hurricane and the Spitfire. The Air Ministry requirement for those two fighters was laid down in 1934 in Ramsay MacDonald's government. The two aircraft first flew in Stanley Baldwin's last government. They, together with radar, together with the whole sector and group control system, were introduced into service during Neville Chamberlain's government. Come 1940, when Churchill was Prime Minister and had responsibility for this system, wonderful system, Churchill then wastes those fighter resources, sending them to France to prop up a collapsing French state. Hugh Dowding, great hero of mine, in a seminal letter, told Churchill this would lead to the defeat of this country. He stopped Churchill. During the Battle of Britain, Churchill then exhorted Hugh Dowding, head of fighter command, to throw Britain's uh, fighter forces into massed air attacks against the Luftwaffe, a strategy which, which Dowding knew would be catastrophic. Dowding stopped it. Churchill himself, of course, eventually said, correctly, Dowding was the architect of victory. But if Churchill had had his way, my goodness me. The next time Britain had a victory was two years later. Montgomery leading the 8th Army at El Alamein. Churchill had wanted Montgomery to throw Britain's forces into a premature ill-prepared attack. Montgomery said no. Montgomery ensured that all the resources necessary were harnessed before the famous Battle of El Alamein, the second one, which we all know, went ahead. He then, with his meticulous planning, Monty, ensured victory. Once again, a victory which was accomplished by a great commander, Monty, like Dowding, standing up to, Hit to Hitler, standing up to him as well, but standing up to Churchill and ensuring that the correct strategy 
was introduced. Churchill had a pre-World War I Royal Navy view of armoured warships, battleships. He didn't appreciate that the capital ship of the Navy by 1940 had already become the aircraft carrier, and of course, not until too late did he realise the threat from the U-boats. Despite the fact that air power had dispatched much of the Italian fleet, British air power, at Taranto, Churchill sends British battleship, the Prince of Wales, battle cruiser, the Repulse, to the far east because they were invincible, and they were promptly sunk by the Japanese air power and filmed it for posterity. Also in the Far East, Hong Kong fell, of course, Singapore. Churchill had already sent a significant proportion of British armed forces out to Singapore, most of whom went straight into Japanese captivity without firing a shot. Churchill exclaimed he didn't know that Singapore was so poorly defended. The brilliant historian A.J.P. Taylor pointed out that he did know and he'd done nothing. Churchill's entire military strategy in World War II was based on the paradigm of Gallipoli in World War I. It was what became known as a dispersionist strategy. Pinpricks of uh, military attacks around the periphery of Hitler's fiefdom. Norway, Greece, Crete, North Africa, Dieppe, Sicily, Italy and an obsession with uh, an attempt to launch an attack on the Japanese from the northern tip of Sumatra that he comes back to again and again and again and again, completely opposed by the, uh, the, the British military. Now, you cannot win a war by dispersionism. It's not possible. To win a war, you have to concentrate forces. World War II wasn't won by dispersionism. World War II was won by the concentration of forces in the East, by the Soviet Union, and the concentration of forces by the Western powers from Normandy onwards, 1944 onwards, on the Western side. Dispersionism certainly cost lives. It lost battles. But it didn't and couldn't win wars. But the failure to concentrate resulted in procrastination over the Second Front. Churchill had it postponed from 42 to 43 and then 43 to 44. As Max Hastings points out in his new book, Churchill would have had it postponed in 1945 if the Americans hadn't insisted that we had a Second Front uh, in 1944. So the delay created by this massive dispersionistic campaign cost time and lives. In the last year of the war, 10 million lives were lost in the European theatre. A terrible consequence for the world as well as Europe. Delay cost those lives. That's what Churchill did. Thank you very much indeed. This episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast is brought to you by edX. 
Until now, higher education seemed out of reach to many. Well, now there is edX, an online learning destination where you can take fascinating free courses from the world's best universities, such as Harvard and MIT. Go to edX.org/debate to start learning for free today. That's edX.org/debate. Next up to oppose the motion is Anthony Beaver, historian whose many books cover different aspects of World War II and beyond, most notably Crete, the Battle and the Resistance, Berlin, the Downfall, and Stalingrad, and more recently D-Day, the Battle for Normandy, which was published in June this year. Anthony Beaver. Well, I never expected to hear Pat Buchanan and backing up Vladimir Putin's theory that somehow the British were responsible for World War II. But anyway, um, let's please concentrate on the key issues of the debate: whether or not Churchill was an asset to the free world, and when was that? Well, the free world was most at risk during the Second World War. So, you know, the gold standard, all of that sort of stuff. Let's concentrate on the really important period. Now, of course, Churchill made mistakes. In war, who doesn't? But the main point, as Max Hastings argues in his book, is that Churchill made most of his when he was trying to galvanise the defensive mentality of Britain's rather moribund military establishment. He did adopt a peripheral strategy. So had Pitt. It had been the traditional British strategy because we were offshore, we were an island, we did not have the sort of forces who could engage on straightforward terms with the Wehrmacht uh, on the ground, not at least until the Americans came into the war. And we have just heard once again the facile argument that if Churchill had not delayed the invasion of France first discussed in 1942, then the Allies could have launched D-Day in 1943. That would have meant that the Western Allies could have reached Berlin and Central Europe well before the Red Army. But this line of reasoning is absolute rubbish for the following reasons. A, we did not have sufficient landing craft in 1943. In fact, the shortage of landing craft was the main reason why the invasion was delayed from May to June 1944. The Luftwaffe was not effectively destroyed until the spring of 1944. In 1943, it would have posed a terrible threat to the invasion fleet. C, the U-boat menace to reinforcements crossing the Atlantic had not been eliminated in the spring of 1943. D, the U.S. Army needed the harsh lessons of fighting in the Mediterranean during 1943 to sort itself out. Only during the Battle for Normandy did it develop into the very effective fighting force which achieved the great breakout in central, central France in late July 1944. Churchill, in fact, delayed the invasion of Northern Europe for the wrong reasons. He wanted to attack up Italy and then advance northeastwards into Central Europe to preempt the Red Army's occupation. This was militarily unsound, I will certainly admit. But it shows his determination to save Central Europe, something which did not concern the Americans. They saw this as an example of Churchill playing politics for the post-war period. They could not have been more wrong in underestimating the Soviet intention to impose a huge cordon sanitaire across Eastern and Central Europe. In any case, the point is that Churchill was proved right 
to have delayed the invasion, whether or not it was for the wrong reasons. Now, the whole Allied strategy of the Second World War had been determined at the Tehran Conference in November 1943. Stalin was in the driving seat, partly because of the successes of the Red Army that year, and partly because he could claim that the Soviet Union was fighting the bulk of the Wehrmacht and suffering the bulk of the casualties. Roosevelt, in an attempt to carry favor with Stalin, was cutting himself loose from his close alliance with Churchill. He was even agreeing matters with, uh, with Stalin behind Churchill's back and making jokes, certainly about the British attempt to hold on to the empire. It was Roosevelt who put paid to Churchill's hope to save Central Europe. The decision on overall strategy at Tehran, the fact that the main Allied effort would be to attack Germany uh, via France and Northern Europe, meant that a Soviet occupation of Central Europe and the Balkans would become inevitable, and there would be nothing that the Allies could do about it. Roosevelt, with high-minded naivety, rejected any idea of spheres of influence after the war. But Churchill, well aware that Stalin would do his utmost to turn the countries occupied by the Red Army into satellite states, went to Moscow in October 1944 to try to save something from the approaching disaster. The only country he could hope to save was Greece and thus keep the Soviets out of the eastern Mediterranean. This was the much-criticized percentage agreement under which Churchill tacitly conceded majority Soviet control of Bulgaria, Romania, Hungary, and Yugoslavia, which all lay directly in the path of the Red Army. It may have been immoral, but it was the only form of realpolitik which was likely to work with Stalin. The Alta Conference in 1945 is sometimes portrayed as the great betrayal. But who was the betrayer of Central and Southern Europe? It certainly wasn't Churchill. If anybody was at fault, it was Roosevelt, who felt he could charm Stalin into behaving well in the occupied areas and continue the Grand Alliance into the post-war period. To make matters worse, Roosevelt had refused to discuss joint tactics with Churchill when they met on Malta before the conference started. He did not want Stalin to think that the Western powers were ganging up on him. Needless to say, Stalin still didn't trust them, but he was in a strong position. He knew exactly what he wanted, while the British and Americans had no agreed program of what they wanted to achieve. In addition, Stalin, through his spies in Britain and the United States, and through having Beria's son bug the British and American delegation's rooms in Yalta, learned precisely where the rift lay between the two Western allies. He exploited them with great cunning and confidence because he held all the Trump cards, with the Red Army already on the ground in Central Europe and the NKVD seizing or shooting all possible opponents to Soviet rule. The agreement at Yalta, to a large degree, simply reflected the realities of the military decisions made at Tehran. Roosevelt, however, had two key objectives at Yalta. One was to get Stalin to agree to his great dream, the United Nations Organization. The other was to persuade Stalin to join the war against Japan almost immediately after the defeat of Nazi Germany. For Churchill, on the other hand, the basic stumbling block was Poland and Stalin's attempt to impose his own puppet government on the country. Roosevelt was simply not prepared to support Churchill in a showdown on the matter if it placed in jeopardy his two projects. In the circumstances, Stalin's ruthless determination was bound to win. Finally, Churchill's anger 
over Stalin's brutal repression in Poland came to a head in May 1945, just after the German surrender. He asked his chiefs of staff to conduct a contingency planning exercise to see whether it might be possible to push back the Red Army to enforce compliance of the Ultra Agreement on free elections in Poland. This was codenamed Operation Unthinkable. After detailed study, they had to come back to him and say that without support from the United States, it really was unthinkable. Poland and all the other countries occupied by the Red Army were doomed to over 40 years' communist dictatorship. But nobody with a trace of intellectual honesty can say that the fault was Churchill's. Ladies and gentlemen, Winston Churchill was most certainly not a liability to the free world. He was our greatest asset. Thank you very much. Now supporting the motion, historian Norman Stone, Professor of International Relations at Bill Kent University, Ankara. From 1984 to 97, he was Professor of Modern History at Oxford, a frequent commentator in British and international press, Mrs. Thatcher's policy advisor on Europe and one of her speechwriters. His books include Hitler and World War I, A Short History, and his next, The Atlantic and Its Enemies, 1945 to 1991, will be published next year. Norman Stone. Ladies and gentlemen, I might begin by saying it, it, um, I'm a war baby, and it goes uh, somewhat against the grain to be standing here saying what I'm about to say. Um, not only am I a war baby, I can remember the taste of wartime orange juice. Horrible. Uh, and my, my photograph was taken in a crash for the working mother, which was then used as Labour Party propaganda in Glasgow. I must look out for it again. I look terribly winsome. <laughs> now, the, um, the problem with this kind of plinth veneration of uh, Churchill, which I think the opposition are engaging in, um, is that the perspective does lengthen on many things. And as it happens, I say this with tongue-in-cheek, um, um, Richard Overy uh, has said um, very pregnantly that Churchill was gulled at Yalta. And Andrew Roberts, whom I taught for my sins, um, <laughs> has written a whole book on the Churchillians, which I think does show something of what I want to say, which is that the, the myth is dangerous. It was dangerous. Now, the first big thing that I think the opposition are missing out is that Churchill was first and foremost an imperialist. He was the product of that wonderful world of Bengal Lancers. Lord Curzon, who was not a stupid man, was Viceroy of India in 1904, and he was asked, how long are we going to stay in India, Viceroy? As if forever. Forty years later, it's over. Now, I put it to you that the attempt of the imperialists to save the empire in the 1920s and 30s especially, when it was just, as Gandhi said, millions of acres of bankrupt real estate, was fatal. Why do we now live with the problem of Pakistan, which is occupying most newspapers most of the time? Precisely because the, Indi the British got India wrong in the 1930s, Churchill in the lead. Uh, he said, India is no more of a nation than the equator. Now, that sort of thing is dangerous. All right, if you propose to be the emperor of the equator yourself. 
but it's not a very good idea. And then it misled Churchill into this extraordinary strategy of trying to fight in the Far East when he was already having his hands full with um, problems in the English Channel. What an extraordinary way to behave. Um, and I'd put that thing first as the great, um, Churchill's greatest, uh, well, his greatest failure. Uh, the scuttle out of India was all very well for my generation. We didn't have to put up with the sort of nonsense the French had in Vietnam, let alone Algeria. But it was a pretty terrible thing for the Indians themselves, and to some extent still is. So let's not be too smug about that. Now, the next thing that I'd like to point out is, is it terribly sensible strategy in 1944-45 to bomb Germany to bits? The speakers on my side have talked about that. You all know the scenes of bombing cities in, of the bombed cities in Berlin. I think Jeffrey Wheatcroft, who is in the audience, um, pointed out the extraordinary sadism with which it was carried on. A place like Rotenburg op der Tauber, an utterly harmless little Hansel and Gretel town, although it had actually voted Nazi, as I happen to know, well, it was simply obliterated in the very end of the war. Uh, why was this carried on? Now, leaving the ins and outs of the bombing offensive on one side, is it not a little bit silly in 1944-45 to be bombing into the ground a country with which you are going to be militarily allied three or four years later. Why was it, it I mean, I can remember myself the glee with which as a small boy I would look at the pictures of, of the hanged war criminals, Ribbentrop, and read about it. It was the world when the Daily Express would lead with the headline, as George Orwell said, Babies Burn. Um, terrible sadistic business, but it was also very bad realpolitik, whatever its moral qualities. The, um, there were some very good Germans in England during the war. Ollenhauer, who was nearly leader of the Social Democrats, would have been our man, wrote to Eden to say, uh, can I help with planning for your post-war Germany? And Eden said, the best thing you can do is go and work in an aircraft factory. And that's the sort of thinking that was going on about Germany. Another extraordinary case. Uh, you'll have seen this film, or at least Valkyrie, maybe seen it, Valkyrie, in which quite inappropriately Tom Cruise is made to play a German aristocrat. What are they, go what are they going to do next? Delton John as Anna Karenina? The day after the 20th of July had failed, the BBC read out the list of all the Germans who had approached them during the war to see if peace could be fixed up. They were, of course, picked up and their families by the Gestapo the following day. Now, that seems to me to argue something going very badly wrong. It's understandable. But if we are going to venerate Churchill, he should have been like de Gaulle and seen much further ahead. As things were, what he did see was an England in close alliance with the United States. It's perfectly true to say that he got out of it. For us, I think, a privileged existence. The continent of Europe was wrecked. The England which I grew up, oh, Scotland, but, you know, I'm sorry, I'm old-fashioned British. You'll forgive me if I don't say Britain. 
Um, the England I grew up in was, uh, was uh, remarkably prosperous. It seemed to be doing very, very well. And then suddenly, in comparison with the rest of, the, of Europe, it went down. You'll remember the times of the 1970s when you looked at your passport and felt rather dread at travelling to somewhere on continental Europe, which simply worked better. Um, now, obviously, I'm not blaming Churchill for that, but I think there was a mood of national com- complacency which developed, which grows around the sort of plinth view of Churchill, the right little, tight little island which had fought its corner, which had planned its war effort with great distinction, which had emancipated women during the war. Um, The result of all that was the sort of thinking which went into the Labour government of 1945. And I wonder really if there's a single institution created out of that period which we wouldn't want to amend very seriously if we could be time machined back into it. Now, to that extent, the culture... the, the, um, the Churchill cult has a certain amount of responsibility. We thought we'd done absolutely wonderfully, who's like us, etc., etc. And in fact, the poor old Germans were getting their act together in a way that uh, we had simply failed to do. We caught up again, I think, in the 1980s, and it was a very interesting period to go through. But let us not fall for this smug veneration of Churchill. There is, as Pat Buchanan said, 1940 a wonderful moment to read about in history. But the rest, I've got my doubts. Thank you. Our final speaker opposing the motion is Richard Overy, Professor of History at Exeter University and author of more than 20 books about the Second World War, The History of Air Power and The History of Hitler and Stalin, most particularly his book Dictators, Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Russia, which was published in 2005. In his most recent book, reviewed only this last weekend, was 1939, Countdown to War, Richard Overy. Well, I have to say it's quite difficult going sixth with such a distinguished panel because I know you're all dying to get your teeth into us. Um, but I am going to uh, round off the debate. Now, I thought my task would be quite difficult, really, but in fact I've heard a lot of, uh, of history, discussion of strategy, discussion of the gold standard, none of which, it seems to me, uh, is really germane to the case that the opposition is trying to make. What is this case? Well, I took the motion to mean that if Churchill had acted very differently or if he'd not been there at all, things would have been better for the free world. Now, listening to uh, our opponents, you would think for a moment that Britain had lost the First World War and lost the Second World War. (laughs) And every now and again, I was having to do a double take when uh, uh, listening to this catalogue of awful crimes that Churchill was supposed to be responsible for. Now, I want to approach the question in two ways, I think, which have not really been talked about so far this evening. One is, I think, and with respect to my distinguished, um, the distinguished opposition, uh, that there is a profound misunderstanding about the nature of the historical process, and particularly the nature of the historical processes in which Churchill himself was an actor. And the second point I'm going to make is to come back to this question about a liability for the free world. And this question of freedom, 
of liberty, which was so central, of course, to Churchill's own values, is something I think that we've not really talked about very much this evening. Now, the first and most obvious thing about the, the history is that you can't blame one person for all of this. In fact, listening to what the opposition was saying, I kept having to pinch myself again and saying, are we talking about Stalin or are we talking about Hitler? Here is somebody able to wave a wand, get a decision enforced, get his way, drive through things which were bad for the free world. Of course, he wasn't like that. Historical processes don't work like that. Churchill, uh, though he didn't always like it, of course, uh, had to wage war, just as he was a chance of the Exchequer having to wage an economic war by committee. And the important thing, too, which I think we've not heard enough about tonight, is that Churchill, for all his waywardness, for all his strategic misjudgment, and none of us will, of course, argue that he was perfect, was able to take advice. Did Hitler take advice? Not very well, we're told. But Churchill was willing to take advice, and he took advice on a wide range of issues. Not only that, of course, but the processes with which he was concerned, whether it was the First World War and munitions, whether it was the Second World War and fighting the Battle of Britain, whether it was decisions about overlord, he wasn't the only person involved in all these processes. Hundreds of people were involved in this decision-making. Indeed, in many cases, we're talking about historical processes which were quite beyond his control, or the control, indeed, of any politician uh, during the period that we're talking about. And what I think the opposition has done is simply to make Churchill a lightning conductor for all their own gripes about what went wrong with the historical uh, story in the 20th century. On many of the issues that we've heard about already, Churchill was largely a spectator, the rise of communism in China, the establishment of communism in other parts of Asia. Even Eastern Europe, what could Churchill have done about Eastern Europe? It's, enough, it's one thing to say that Churchill was responsible for the deaths of 13, uh, the expulsion of 13 million Germans, etc., etc. But we all know that there was very little that the West could do by the end of the Second World War to expel the Soviet Union from Eastern Europe. Certainly nothing that Churchill would have done on his own. And Churchill was not on his own. He operated with other politicians. He took advice from the combined chiefs of staff. He took advice from his own um, political staff. This is not a Churchill-only story. This is Churchill in historical processes, and his relationship to those processes is something we always need to bear in mind. What's interesting, I think, is that Churchill himself recognized more clearly than many other people the limitations of action, what he could and what he couldn't do. He also recognized, I think, his own limitations. It's only of the Churchill industry over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, which has made him in, in, into a kind of saint, and we all doubt his miracles. Um, in fact, Churchill recognized his own limitations as well. But he was driven, I would argue, by a world historical vision, which very few other wartime leaders or leaders from the interwar years uh, enjoyed. And during the crisis of the 1930s and 1940s, and that's really what we're talking about, that's a meat of what we're talking about, this crisis in the Middle East, crisis decades in the middle of the 20th century, that world historical vision was a very important one. Now, the core of that vision is a view of liberty. And we need to remember that the motion before us tonight is about the free world. It's not about, you know, a, a world that, uh, that we might dream up or like or think about, but it is about this core question of freedom. Now, Churchill isn't the best person to talk about freedom, of course. He didn't want to give much freedom to the Indians, of course. Um, he came from a particular class. 
He had uh, a deep loathing of communism. He didn't like the Labour Party very much. But what Churchill was driven by was a deep hatred of tyranny. He knew what tyranny was. He had an old-fashioned view of English liberty. Well, it seems old-fashioned perhaps today, but it's a very important view, I think, of English liberty. That it was fundamental. It was about the rule of law. It was about uh, parliamentary government. Uh, it was about fundamental freedoms. Now, you might think that's a piece of rhetoric, um, but in fact it is central to that Churchillian vision. Churchill was a warrior for the liberal age. And we need to remember that the liberal age was in deep crisis in the 1930s and 1940s. Indeed, when Churchill came to power in 1940, there was almost no democracy left in Europe. Uh, the high point of the crisis years of 1941-42, uh, it looked as if a liberal age, for which Britain had uh, a, 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 played a large part in creating, uh, was on the point of extinction. We need to remember the nature of the crisis that Churchill is trying to confront. Uh, this is not a, a better strategy here, uh, a better economic policy there. He saw this as a central crisis of civilization, and many of his people saw it that way as well. And it, it seems to me that Churchill's critical contribution is really to understand those values and to align Britain with them at a moment of acute crisis in world history. And even if his uh, speech was rhetorical and long-winded, even if he was blind to some of the problems of a democratic empire, I would still argue that this is an important part of his legacy. And I want to finish by quoting Churchill's last speech in the House of Commons, 1955 parting speech. The day may dawn, he said, when fair play, love for one's fellow men, respect for justice and freedom will enable tormented generations to march forth serene and triumphant from the hideous epoch in which we have had to dwell. Now, it may not have worked perfectly, it may not have worked quite as he saw it, but I think that that exemplifies uh, the kind of approach that Churchill had to world issues. Whatever we think of this rhetoric or of its effect, a man committed to the survival of those core values, hostile to tyranny and its stifling and inhuman consequences, can surely only be regarded in the long run as an asset. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.